Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Amen. Thanks, Todd. Welcome to Worship Choir. (laughs) Well, last week, Mark walked us through the last section of Revelation 20, the final judgment. If you weren't here and you want to hear all about judgment, go watch last week. But I'll catch you up a little bit. You know, I think we might be tempted to think that our culture is uniquely averse to the idea of judgment. But in reality, no human has ever liked the idea. I mean, we like judging, right? But we don't like judgment. But I think it's because we misunderstand the word. When we hear that word, we think of someone who's being judgmental. And there's usually an attitude or an agenda behind someone who's being judgmental. But that's not what scripture is telling us about God. God is not judgmental. He is the judge. Just think about it this way. In our legal system, what does a judge and a jury do? All they do is listen to the facts of the case. They're charged with doing their best to assure that both sides present the facts fairly. And then once all the facts are laid out, they just make a decision. Did the defendant do the thing that they're accused of doing or not? At the end of the day, judgment is simply a yes or no. They either did the thing or they didn't. And how could God be a God of truth and justice if he can't simply affirm the truth? If he can't just say yes, Chad has done the things that Chad has done. The good and the bad. Judgment is simply God affirming the truth about what has happened in our lives. And Mark reminded us last week that no one is exempt from judgment. The facts of our lives are simply the facts of our lives. And God does not hide from the truth. But here is the turn in the Christian story. This is where the gospel difference differs from every other religion and every other system in human history. Yes, the truth of our lives will be revealed. Our lives are judged because what we do in this life, it does matter. But we are saved by grace through faith. We are not saved by the things that we do, but by what Christ has done for us. My name doesn't make its way into the Lamb's book of life based on anything that I have done. My name is in the Lamb's book of life because of what Christ has done. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Daryl Johnson says it this way. He says, we are all going to die. (laughs) It's a good way to start a sentence. Uh, We are all going to die. And each of us is going to have to give an accounting for our lives. And on that day, we have two options. The first option is to take our stand on the basis of what we have done with our lives. The second option is to take our stand on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done with his. And I shall exercise option two, 
because I find no hope in option one. Y'all, I know myself, and I know that if my eternal destination is dependent upon my works, I am toast. (laughs) According to Revelation, literally, (laughs) I'm toast. This is important. It's important as we're coming to the end of this series for a couple reasons. What happens in this life matters. A people of faith should lead lives that are marked by the faith that we profess. We can't just claim the name of Jesus with our lips and continue to let our lives display the work of the beast. We can't have it both ways. Our lives, as we are continually transformed by the Holy Spirit, they should be a witness to our faith in Jesus. But no one other than Jesus has lived a perfect sinless life. And left to our own works, no matter how good, no matter how righteous we might be, we are all sinners. We all fall short and none of us will make it in. So while there is judgment of our lives, we did the things we did, the good and the bad. Our salvation is not based on those things. It's based on the work of Christ, on the book of life. We are saved by grace through faith. And when you stand before the throne, which book will you turn to as the basis for your salvation? Will you rely on your own good works or will you depend on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? I shall exercise option two because I find no hope in option one. And when you claim option two, when you claim Christ, this is your reward. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you called us here today. Grateful that you have brought us to the end of this amazing, fascinating, disturbing, comforting, challenging book. We are thankful that you've opened our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our ears to hear what you've had to say over these many weeks and months that we've been studying Revelation. And we pray now, this week and next, as we finish, that we would truly hear what you are saying to us about the way all of this ends. Because our vision of the future defines the way we live in the present. So be present with us. I pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. 
Amen. So a couple weeks ago, I told you about the day that Jennifer and I were engaged. Um, at two of the services that morning, Jennifer reminded me, uh, she said, you didn't tell them that we actually did get engaged at the end of the day. Um, the day was kind of chaotic. I have fun telling that story, but we did get engaged at the end of the day. The day ended really well. Uh, we actually just celebrated our 21st anniversary on March 11th, uh, just last week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we celebrated with a trip to Mobile, Alabama for a dance competition. <laughs> Not for us. <laughs> for, for um, I remember our wedding day like it was yesterday. We were in a Presbyterian church in the woodlands. They had glass windows on the back of the sanctuary, just like we do. Uh, she is the only girl I've ever loved. Um, and even though we've known each other since we were 12 and 13 years old, when I saw her walk past the windows and down the aisle with her dad holding her by his side, it was like I was seeing her for the first time. Um, I remember what it smelled like in the room. I remember that moment like it was yesterday. I'll never forget it. Now, if I'm honest, <clears throat> when I think about all the time and energy and the cost that go into weddings in our culture, there is a part of me that cringes a little bit. <laughs> and, and I'm pretty sure the part that cringes is the dad that's fully aware of what might be in store for us as the parents of a couple sweet kids. But once I've gotten over that, the rest of me actually love the time and the energy and honestly, to an extent, the cost that goes into celebrating weddings in our culture. Because they are celebrating something even more than we fully understand. They're celebrating something larger than us, something so beautiful, something that God designed and established so that we could better understand the depth of his love for us, so that we could understand his commitment to us. Weddings are meant to be a glimpse into eternity, not the hope of a future, but the start of a new future where two become one. A wedding ceremony is an anticipation of the passage that we just read in Revelation 21. This passage is describing the great wedding of the lamb to his beloved bride, and it's an event that should be celebrated. It's an event that came at the most extravagant of all costs. And it's an event that's worthy of celebration because this is the moment creation has longed for since the Garden of Eden. And Revelation 21 points back to the garden in the past as it paints a picture of God's future in the holy city. And it invites us into that future even now. So I do want to show you a couple things about this passage because they do impact the way that we live even today. So the first thing, notice that it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, do you remember the very first words in all of scripture? We're at the end. Remember all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I've told you before that in Hebrew, words are sometimes better understood by pictures than by dictionary definitions. The word heaven in Hebrew is used to describe the place where God's glory dwells, the place where we will be with him forever. But it can also be used to simply describe the sky above us, the heavens. It's one word in Hebrew, 
with two very different meanings. So we have to use context to decide which is which. And we know that Genesis 1 is about God's creation of creation. God was not created. The place where God dwells was not created. God created creation, this stuff. The heavens and the earth, it refers to created places. The sky, the heavens, along with the land and the sea. So I read what I think is a more accurate translation. In the beginning, God created what is above and what is below. It's meant to describe to humans what they would experience as they look at what God's created when they gaze up into the vast night sky while they're standing with their feet on the ground. And we know that John was a Jewish disciple of Jesus. He received this revelation from Jesus. And as he begins to describe this vision of the end, he goes back to the picture that was painted in the very beginning. A new heaven and a new earth. This is very important because he's not saying that something was wrong in heaven where God's glory dwells. If that's where God is, how could something be wrong? So wrong that heaven had to be destroyed. That's not what he's saying. He's simply saying, I looked and I saw anew what is above me and what is below me. Because the first, what is above me and what is below me, has passed away. You see, some assume that Revelation ends, we're at the end of Revelation, and some assume that the end is total destruction. That physical creation no longer exists. Maybe because we've come to believe that physical stuff is bad and spiritual stuff is good. Many Christians, in fact, have come to believe that's what the Bible teaches, that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. It's not. (laughs) That is not what the Bible teaches. That's actually a heresy from the early church called Gnosticism. And it's such a heresy that they believed that even Jesus couldn't have been fully human. He couldn't have been physically human because earthly stuff is bad and corrupt. Only the spiritual is good. Y'all, we've almost finished the book of Revelation, and Revelation has made it clear not all spiritual things are good. We've read about dragons and beasts and devils and demons. Evil itself is a spiritual issue. We also know from the beginning of the book that not all created things are bad. When God created, what word did he use to describe everything he made? He called it good. We broke it. But he called it good. He made it good. But still there are variations of this teaching that have continued throughout history. And it's led many to believe that eternal life must be this spiritual existence only. That it's disembodied. It's not physical. And to those who have embraced this misconception, Revelation is offering us a correction. John is telling us eternity is not a disembodied spiritual experience. It is a new creation. It is different. It's difficult to describe for sure. It's glorified and perfected. But it is a new creation nonetheless. Have you ever had a moment looking out over the canyons, up at the mountains, at the beauty of the sunset, the power of the ocean when you're standing on a sandy beach? Have you ever had a moment when you are just in awe 
of how truly amazing this created world is, how beautiful God's creation is. When we left before our little trip, everything was still gray because of the freeze. When we came back, all of a sudden everything's green. And how beautiful the green grass and the trees can be, the colors of the flowers, listening to the songs of the bird, watching the power and grace of the creatures that walk and crawl on the earth. I've shared this with you before, but we took the kids to the Grand Canyon when they were young. Ben was like four years old. And as we walked toward the rim, I was in tears and I heard him, (gasps) I heard him gasp when he saw it. It was so beautiful and majestic that it brought a 30-year-old man to tears and it took a four-year-old's breath away. Y'all, those are moments of clarity. They're moments when we can see past the brokenness of this world. Almost as if we're looking into the past, into the Garden of Eden itself. Moments when we're getting a glimpse of heaven on earth. Those moments are an anticipation of what we've read. An anticipation of that marriage, the union of God's dwelling place with earth. Of God with his people. God's good creation now renewed and restored with our Father now standing right by our side. So for those of you who expect eternity to be somewhat lifeless and boring, (laughs) ethereal and ghostly, I'm sorry to disappoint, but eternity is alive, real, physical, full of beautiful, renewed and redeemed stuff Everything working as God designed and inhabited by God and his people forever. That's really good news. There's another misconception that Revelation 21 addresses. Some have come to believe that our story, the Christian story, ends with us being taken away, snatched up to the heavens, abducted by Jesus. (laughs) But Revelation offers another correction. It says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. The important element in this is direction. Coming down out of heaven, he will be with them. Y'all, these words have always been in the book of Revelation for 2,000 years. (laughs) Too few of us have read them. I've always found it so interesting. So many Christians have come to believe that our story is one of escapism. That our only hope is to be taken off to some far off place because this place is beyond redemption. And it's amazing to me because the direction of God's story has always been God coming down to us. Walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Descending to wait for Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. Wrestling by the river with Jacob. Born to a virgin named Mary. The spirit descending as a dove at Jesus' baptism. Then descending again on the Christian believers. Tongues of fire on their heads as they spoke as the spirit enabled them. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit God in his triune existence has always descended to be with his people. But this time, what Revelation 21 is describing, this time, he's here to stay. It's forever. 
The direction of God's story has always been God coming down to us because no one and no created thing is beyond redemption. So here's why this matters. Our picture of the future, it frames the way we live in the present. My professor, Daryl Johnson, says this. He says, we automatically live out in the present what we think the future holds. The decisions we make, especially regarding our use of resources like time and money, are determined by our sense of the future. The quality of the present is shaped by our experience of the past and our understanding of the future. Our theology, our understanding of scripture, it has implications for this life. Our picture of how this story ends frames the way we live today. If you believe that this world is destined to just burn, then how will you treat it? How will you live in it? How will you use its resources? If you think some of its people are destined to burn right along with it, how will you treat them? If the weight of the future is centered on the glory of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, then why do we live right now as if this is all about us? If the kingdom of God and its righteousness is the destination to which we are headed, then why do we think it's a burden to invest 10% into his eternal kingdom while we spend 90% building our temporary ones? If God is the only righteous judge, and if every human who has ever lived is dependent upon that lamb's book of life to enter into glory, then why are we treating sinners and unbelievers as if they're anything other than who we were before we met Jesus. Why not offer them that same and mercy and grace that was extended to us and hope and pray that they choose to come along for the ride? You see, for those who are in Christ, for those who rely on the book of life to restore them in relationship to the Father, Revelation is painting a picture of a future that's more beautiful and alive and vibrant than even the human language can effectively describe. The biblical vision of the future is not about the destruction and the end of creation. It's about the beginning of a new one. It is about new creation, redemption, restoration, all things reunited with the one who made it and who loves us. Next week, we're going to hear more good news about what's not waiting for us in the new creation. But for this week, we're focusing on what is there. So I want to give you a little homework. Go home today and read chapter 21 and chapter 22, the whole thing all together. And on your own, make a list. What is waiting for us in eternity? What's there? And then to prepare for next week, make another list. What's not there? I want to show you quickly what we will find. We find stuff. <laughs> Stones and gems of every color, walls and gates and streets, trees that have fruit on them, a river, a redeemed, new, what is above and what is below. We find stuff and we find people. It doesn't say God will be with you and you will be his person. It says God will be with them and they will be his people. Remember this from chapter seven. 
I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From where? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is not just a story about you and Jesus. That is an important part of the story. But this is also the story of the redemption and restoration of all God's image bearers in relationship to him. So we find stuff, we find people, we of course find God. Nothing exists forever apart from God and he will be with us forever. We find his glory. If God is present, the weight of his glory follows. And God's glory makes the colors of new creation shine even brighter. That's what John continues to describe throughout chapter 21. As I stand in tears at the rim of the canyon with my child breathless at my side, we will then be joined by our father in glory forever. We find real life, real life. Friends, right now, we are being sold a lie about what matters in life. Whether it's the gospel of material things or a social gospel of likes and follows and shares on social media, we are being distracted and deceived into believing that things that don't matter, matter the most. And because of that, we are more stressed and more anxious because we are chasing things that won't last and don't matter. Real life is found in Christ alone. He is where we find the life that we were always meant to live. Now y'all, here's the beauty of all this. The beauty of the Christian life is that we have access, at least in part, to all of these things now. Will you put that last slide back up, Noah? We have access, at least in part, to all of these things now. The stuff of creation God's image bearers around the world in all their diversity, the presence of God and his glory that comes along with it, and real life, the life of a disciple of Jesus. People who are being made new every day, a people who live as if the future reality is actually true. Our picture of the future frames the way we live in the present. Let's pray. Father, it's nice to have a week where we're not talking about dragons and demons. It's more than nice. It's beautiful to hear what you have in store for us. I would imagine for most of us, it's more grand and alive and vibrant than we would have ever imagined. So God, we pray that today as we're coming to the end of the series, that this week and next week, that we would just be inspired by your glory, inspired by the scope of your plan that has gone all the way from Genesis to Revelation in awe of the fact that you invite us to be a part of that story. Active workers reaching out to those who have not accepted their part in the story yet. So God, we pray today and every day that follows that you would remind us of what the end holds so that we would live in the present as if that future reality is actually true.
And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.